Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. Anyone who's ever worried about their report card, begged for a better grade, or taken that class for the easy A, knows that how we assess students in America produces some unintended consequences. Grades shape our education system. How we rank determines whether we get accepted to college and ultimately whether we get a good job. So it's not hyperbole when your parents say, your whole future could be riding on this. A new book called Off the Mark questions that system, asking whether the way we grade and rank our children is the best way to teach, or if the system, quote, distorts student and educator behavior in ways that undermines learning and exacerbates inequality. Joining us now are the authors of Off the Mark, Jack Schneider, an education professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me. And Ethan Hutt, an education professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Welcome. Thanks for having us. So I went back and forth on where to begin, and I think the best way to explain the premise of your book is to walk through an example from here in Ohio. So in 2012, we passed this law called the Third Grade Reading Guarantee, which said if a child scored below what it called the promotion score, they would have to repeat third grade. The idea was that from kindergarten through third grade, you learn to read, and from then on, you read to learn. And we've been fighting here in Ohio about that retention requirement ever since. And I think that's the exact kind of high-stakes testing that you guys really delve into in the book. Yeah, one of the things that we try to make clear in the book is that assessments of student learning are never as straightforward as simply communicating information or simply operating the educational system or simply, you know, trying to do something like create a record that can be looked at later. It's always multiple purposes at the same time. And as a result, a policy that is designed to do one thing may do that thing pretty well but is going to have other consequences. And one of the things that we liken that to in the book is, you know, trying to use the same kind of assessment technology for multiple purposes is like trying to hybridize a Ferrari and a Mack truck, right? It's not going to be good at either one of them. Yeah, because this kind of high stakes testing obviously creates test anxiety. And we've been debating back and forth in the legislature for years whether to get rid of the retention requirement. And I personally interviewed parents in my last job. I was a state house reporter before taking this. So and they would say these parents would say their kids had no issues reading. They were reading at grade level, above grade level. But they panicked about this exam because they knew fail and you're going to be held back. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem, and you can see how a high-stakes test like this creates a real bottleneck for students that exacerbates anxiety about the test and may affect their performance and also may have outsized effects on their, you know, maybe they had a bad day, and now it's a whole year. So it's, you know, and it, it creates this um, this anxiety that, that doesn't necessarily always feel like it facilitates learning. Like, I wouldn't accuse any teacher, you know, in the third grade of, maybe being aware of the consequences and maybe start teaching to the test. Or you could imagine, you know, uh, students focusing on just the skills that they they see are as most important to passing that test. 
not to become a good reader, not to develop as a reader or develop their read their love of learning, but just to get through this this one bottleneck. And that's where you can you can begin to see how we talk about how these technologies can really distort both the incentives in the system, students' relationship to learning, and then also the 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 development of students as as um, as you know readers and learners and and all those other things that we want for our schools. So in the last budget here passed in June of 2023, lawmakers removed the retention requirement, but there's still a block of Republicans here who believe that was a bad choice. And it gets to this sort of fundamental question, right? Learning to read is critical to all education, to learning, to jobs, to success in life. And, you know, the the argument against getting rid of it is they wanted to, quote, guarantee. They wanted to make sure that by third grade, children could read. And I don't think that that's the wrong goal. It's Right. It's just it gets really sticky with how do you incentivize that goal correctly? Yeah, because these technologies and they are technologies, right? One of the thing you're gonna, things you'll hear from us uh, this morning is repeated reference to grades and tests and transcripts as technologies. And we do need to think of them that way because that's how they are deployed. Um, one of the things about these technologies is that because we have them at hand, they are really easy to use. It's really easy to just turn to something like a test and say, now we're going to solve this problem, right? It's a lot harder to try to make sure that students can read, right? Are functional readers and can read to learn by a certain grade level. It's a lot harder to do that if you are going to seriously consider doing that in a robust, meaningful way, right? It, it's going to require probably a lot of professional development with educators. It's going to involve educating families. It's going to involve doing things like actually watching teachers teach and watching students read. And one of the things that we like to do in this country is just reach for the closest technology that we have at hand and say, well, we'll use this. And Often that technology is a grade or a transcript or a student's, um, you know, testing record. And one of the things that we're trying to do in this book is just bring some awareness to the fact that these are choices that we make every single day, right? They, they become invisible to us because we are so used to the deployment of grades and tests and transcripts in the educational system, but we need to be thoughtful about their use. And when teachers and districts get graded on how well their students perform, that definitely adds another layer. And one of those that you highlight in the book that I found fascinating is students on the bubble. That means students either right below where, say, they need to be for that third grade reading test or right above it. That Those students on the bubble get a disproportionate amount of the attention. Yeah, so this goes to one of the most important parts of uh when you think about how we assess learning, there are a lot of incentives and we need to come to grips with the fact that everyone in the system, students, teachers, schools in general, how they organize are really motivated by these incentives. And so we've seen this consistently over the last two decades that schools are very savvy and they're behaving purely rationally in the, in the way that we've set up the system where if you're going to be graded on how students do on a particular day, on a particular test, on a particular assessment of reading, then it makes sense to ensure that everyone that you believe you can get over that line gets over that line. 
Now that also strikes us as deeply unfair because if you're a student who's a little further from that line and maybe your teacher makes a judgment about you that says, you know what, Ethan's not gonna get there in time. We should just let him be and really focus because we don't wanna lose standing in the community. We don't wanna lose funding. We don't wanna have a bad reputation. So people in the system are responding to incentives. And like Jack said, these are incentives that we have made a policy decision to, to make and you know they they ripple through and exactly like you say we saw this in no child left behind we see this on a small scale when we have these kinds of reading assessments resources go to the people who are um, mo are closest to the line and are are going to make sure that schools look the best on these on these measures and the kids at the top, too, now arguably they maybe need less supports. Uh, so, for example, we give that third grade reading test once in October to gauge where you are. And then in the spring is the one where it counts. So my daughter is in third grade. She took it in October. She passed. Uh, I'll brag a moment. She got the advanced score. So she's reading above grade level. Very proud mom. But her teacher, you know, we're coming up on spring conferences. Her teacher goes, I don't think you need to schedule one, which is like sweet. But also like I'm like, well, hey, what if there's other things I want to talk about in relation to how my daughter's doing in third grade? Yeah. Uh, Ethan said a moment ago that people respond rationally to these kinds of incentives that policy leaders put in play. And it's really important to remember that it is rational decision-making and that even though these kinds of consequences may be unintended, they are not unforeseeable. And there are people who will claim that these are moral failings, right? That when educators respond by saying something like, well, you're, you're above uh, the cut score, we don't need to devote any extra attention to you. That's a rational decision, not a moral failing. When students, and let's talk about older students for a minute. When students go to a teacher and say, hey, I really can't get a B plus in this class. Can I please take that test again? Right. This is not a morally unsavory character. This is a student who recognizes that there are incentives that have been put in place and is responding to those incentives by doing whatever is necessary in order to get the grade in order to gain access to whatever kinds of social or economic goodies, good grades unlock. And so I think it's time that we begin reflecting back some of those failings, not as moral failings of educators and students, but rather as policy failings of legislators, policy elites, and others in the system, including you know families that do not question what grades are, what test scores are, what transcripts do, so that we can be a bit more thoughtful about the kinds of consequences that, again, are unintended, but absolutely foreseeable. Yeah. There's just a what, oh, sorry. Ahead. No, I was go just ahead. Add, I was going to add, like, it also, one of the things that this highlights is, you know, how much our assessment system is often static and, and doesn't really highlight the idea of growth or progress. So, you know, you take it once, you you make, there's another one, you see if you pass, and then it's, you know, a whole big period, you know, you get it marked on your transcript and a whole big period goes away before you get to reassess or you get to think of yourself as, you know, developmentally making progress. And so a lot of, a lot of the problem here is that we have these really consequential, really seemingly permanent, you know, that you, you get your grade and it stays there on your transcript, you're decide, you decide whether you get to advance or not. And so sometimes this is out of step with how we would like to think about students and communicate to students about their 
growth as as learners or as students. Yeah, that gets to another uh, issue that you raise in the book about that feedback is hard for teachers. And you have this great comparison when you talk about how athletic coaches and music teachers give feedback. And they're very clear on what's working and what's not. Like, I mean, I'm sure we can all think of sort of a harsh sports coach who like really yells at your kid or maybe really yelled at you when you were in sports. But that's not how it works in academic subjects like math and science and history because kids don't hear uh, that kind of feedback in the same way. One of the things that we talk about in the book is the difference between short haul communication and long haul communication. Short haul being the effort by an educator to communicate with a student and perhaps that student's family. Long haul being the ways that we use assessment technologies to record information so that it can travel across vast distances in space and time, right? So think about the transcript. The transcript is the permanent record that you've got to carry around with you for the rest of your life. Well, that makes grades pretty high stakes for young people who are all smart enough to figure out that grades matter a lot more than maybe teachers sometimes want them to, right? I was a classroom teacher myself, and I would say things to my students like, hey, I gave you a C plus because I'm trying to communicate to you that this is not your best work. Well, shame on me for being that naive because my students were smarter than me at that time. And they knew, you may think that this is about communication between you and me, but you are also communicating to every college admissions officer who is going to read through my file and possibly even future employers, right? Most employers, if you go to college, aren't going to be looking at your high school transcript. But let's also remember that most American students don't get a college degree. And so what we're doing here in using the same technology for multiple purposes, and we do more than use grades, tests, and transcripts for the purpose of long haul and short haul communication. We also use them to try to motivate students. We also use them to synchronize a system that is largely decentralized, right? Anytime you're trying to use them for just one purpose, you have to remember that there are going to be unintended consequences for all those other purposes. And listeners, we'd like to hear from you this hour. You can give us a call at 614-292-8513. And, you know, I want to shift and talk about what the real goal, the real prize of these grades are. And it's essentially uh, because the way you talk about it in the book is, you know, the system of grading and ranking, you call it the acquisition of tokens and that these tokens get traded in for a prize. And the more tokens you have at the end of, say, high school, the bigger your prize. And that prize is admissions to college, perhaps an elite Ivy League university like Harvard, Princeton or Yale. Yeah, so we, oh, we talk about, yeah, sorry, we, we talk about how, you know, yeah, this, that students correctly perceive that what we call the exchange value, like, this, you know, you turn in your tokens, you get a prize, um, that this is the real value that uh, grades and as a result, like most learning uh, opportunities have in students' views. Like, it's, I can negotiate with my teacher about the grade I got because the premise of that conversation is like, Whatever I did on the essay is less important than the grade I received because the grade gets wrapped up into my final score, my transcript, and my transcript, you know, is what the admissions officer is going to see or the employer is going to see. And so there's a it's a distorting of how we 
focus and, and really emphasize for students that they should be thinking about what is the exchange. Like I have a, a conversation almost every year, uh, every summer with um, you know my neighbors and their children about, well, which AP should I take? And the conversation is is rarely, well, what's your interest? Are you interested in biology or chemistry or environmental science? It's usually some form of well, which one is the easiest so that I can have the AP on my transcript, the honors class on my transcript, and get the A? Because I get the extra point in my GPA if I get the easiest AP with an A. And so it's like, that's not a conversation about learning. That's a conversation about maximizing you know, the number of tokens you can get and the exchange of those. And so we have these conversations up and down the, the system, and it really reduces the space that we have to talk about learning or to center, okay, well, what did you actually learn in the essay? Or what would it mean to revise this essay, not for a, a higher grade, but to develop some set of skills? And so there's a real tension there. And, and we see it almost all the way through um, our system. We're going to take a break. But remember, if you'd like to join this conversation this hour, you can call us at 614-292-8513. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking about grades this hour and whether how we rank and rate our students is the best way if our goal is to impart knowledge, skills, and foster a passion for learning. Still with us are the authors of a new book, Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning But Don't Have To. And we have a call from Pam in Columbus, who says she went to college after 26 years and needed to get all A's. Hi, Pam. Hey, how's it going? So, um, um, yeah. oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I went back to um, a local college here in Columbus University and had left 26 years previously and um, because of circumstances, had a quite a low GPA. And in order for me to even get uh, my degree, again, I had to have all A's. And it was, you know, for me being an older adult, I, I could acclimate. But if that were for a young student transferring, it would make it really, really difficult. And because of my situation, they met with the, the president of the college and made a decision that even if you had gone to that school previously, which I had, after five years and you come back there now, doing away with the GPA and instituting um, a policy that you start with a clean slate. And I agree with the gentleman. Um, I'm, I've been in education in some form or another for 27 years. And, you know, the value of that grade does not always give you the value of the human. So that's my comment. Thank you. 
the caller brings up two really important things and uh, I'm grateful to her for sharing her experience here. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the book uh, is the fact that grades are permanent. Transcripts are a permanent record and test scores often live alongside grades on that permanent transcript. And yet we continue learning, right? So uh, any bad grade that you get in a moment in time, during a moment when you maybe didn't fully understand that material has been recorded forever. Now, the example that Ethan and I always give is that this is true for both of us and it's true for everyone who's listening right now. We once didn't know how to ride bikes, right? In my case, I was quite small. But if you had given me a grade when I was three years old on my ability to ride a two-wheeler, and then I had to carry that around with me for the rest of my life, right? And that would deny me access to things like going on a bike ride with my daughter or renting a bike when we're in a different city, right? That would be a real issue, right? So one of the things that we talk about in the book is there's a fix for that. We don't just have to accept these assessment technologies as they exist. We can make grades overwritable, right? There's new information. Let's update the old information so that it's accurate. And the one other thing that I want to highlight from that comment is the fact that we rely on grades to motivate students. And yet we can see that they are really imperfect as motivators. And again, this is because we're using grades for multiple purposes. It's a lot like trying to hybridize a Ferrari and a Mack truck, right? You can do one of them really well, but you try to do two different things at the same time, and you're going to do neither one particularly well. For motivation, sometimes grades work for some students, but consider the student who has piled up a bunch of bad grades. Is that student going to be motivated to continue to work hard, or have we done the exact opposite thing? Have we told that student, listen, your record is bad enough at this point that you're not going to gain access to a selective college. You may not get into any college at this point. Why continue to try? That's not a very effective message to be sending to students if the goal is to motivate them. But I, I do want to say your book doesn't say that all testing is bad or that all testing should be eliminated. I want to be clear. You talk about diagnostic testing, things like screening for dyslexia or kindergarten readiness assessments, and that this kind of testing can be incredibly valuable for both students and parents. Yeah, thanks for making that point, because it really is important that people recognize that, we, as we've said throughout, tests are a technology and there are real useful uh, places where, as you mentioned, diagnostic testing, screening, where having a standardized measure, so we're not uh, allowing uh, a teacher's bias to get in or assumptions about who the student is or the family uh, to, to influence the judgment about where is that student on a standard measure. So there can be incredibly useful. And also, as Jack mentioned a little while back, we have a very decentralized system in our, um, in our, in all our states or throughout the country. And I think most of us are happy with the idea that we can make our local school board, parents, principals can make decisions uh, that make sense for our students and our communities. But one trade-off there is that we often need, uh, and Jack used the term synchronization, we need assessments often to help us understand where we are relative to our peers in other communities and other states. And this is a really important part about maintaining trust and belief in the school systems, and also so that um, we can have a system that both 
allows for local flexibility, but then also allows students to leave their communities and go to a uh, college far away. And so historically, we've developed these moments of synchronization, these standardized tests to help us uh, preserve that local flexibility while also building a much larger system that serves all our students. I want to go to Jim in Columbus, uh, who talks about something that we haven't brought up yet, which is just the economic factors that influence our GPAs and ultimately determine who gets into those elite schools. Hi, Jim. Hi. So I happen to have a high school senior, and she's very good at math and did the calculation early on that as much as she would have loved to take a theater course or a ceramics course, those are non-weighted courses. And even if she were to get an A or 100%, it would still hurt her GPA. And there are colleges with scholarship programs that have very high thresholds. One of the schools that she applied to has a scholarship with a threshold of 4.3 GPA in high school. So you have to take more than one AP class or IB class in order to uh, reach that. And the alternative is potentially decades of debt. We're asking students to essentially buy a house and take on a mortgage and decades worth of payments uh, in order to receive an education that may or may not pay off. If you buy a house, you can always sell the house. But once you've committed to that program for a degree, you may have a job that's replaced by a technology that didn't even exist when you went to college. This is a great example of the way that we structure a game for students and their families and how it often is a not particularly fun game and can be a not particularly rewarding game. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is the fact that there are alternatives to this, right? There all are alternatives to a world in which we rely on grades, tests, and transcripts to make high stakes decisions about whether or not young people get into college or what kind of jobs people get. So one of the ideas that we float in the book is the creation of a double clickable transcript, right? Instead of having a transcript that contains fewer characters than a Twitter post or whatever we're calling Twitter these days, right? We do have the technologies available now to create a double clickable transcript so you can see evidence of student work and maybe that student work includes things like art, as the previous caller was suggesting, because we certainly know that there are ways to get a 4.3 GPA or whatever is being required without really learning anything. And, and in terms of one more thing that I just want to wedge in here, and that's about student motivation, we have motivated students like this, right, who have been told you've got to get a 4.3 GPA. We have motivated them to work really hard in particular ways, in particular courses, but not to really care about learning, not to discover what they're good at, right? Not to be passionate about learning. And again, there are alternatives to this. As one alternative, we just point to kindergarten classrooms, right? Who should be least involved and invested in school, right? Should be the very youngest students who are used to being able to run amok, at least if they were like, are like me when I was five years old, right? But they are often the most engaged and invested. Why? Because everybody knows that you've got to make the case to them that what they're doing is worthwhile, right? Every single day, you've got to make the case to them, this is a place that matters. You matter. And what you're learning 
is going to pay off for you, not in some future job, but in the ability to do something new or to see the world in a new way. And again, because we rely on these assessment technologies to do so many different things, including motivate students, we fail to do a better job. And if you want to join our conversation about grades and the way we rank our students, you can call us at 614-292-8513. And Jack, your answer there kind of was a natural pivot into what I wanted to talk about, which was next, which is some of the solutions. You have a whole section devoted to solutions. And I'm going to use kind of air quotes around the word solutions because you went through the pros and cons of each idea. And that was one of the things I really loved about the book, that there wasn't one great idea from some other country waiting to be scaled and fit to the United States. You sort of were like, here's a bunch of different ideas. Here's why they work. And here's maybe why they don't. Um, And the one that really caught my eye, and you touched on it in the last segment, was overridable grades. And I love this idea because I was an overachiever who absolutely like took some easy classes in college that I didn't really love because I knew I could get the A. And this idea that I could struggle through something and even if I was getting a C, say at the beginning of the semester, I could work my way towards an A by the end with this overridable grade idea. Yeah, really important that I think we tell students and we think of that in all contexts, you know, as when we join the workforce and we start a job, you're a novice and you you build. I mean, everywhere else we think of it as as growth. We think of it as you get multiple shots at things. Uh, you know, Jack and I went through so many revisions of our book where we would just send something back and forth. And if it were a, a school environment uh, instead of a book about schools, you know, we would have gotten a grade at some point and then it probably would have stopped. So I think really important that we reorient the the classroom around this idea of growth one really important part about rewrite about overwriting the grades is that it gets paired with the idea that we have students doing tasks that are worth redoing and so thinking about skills thinking about what we call the use value of it you know a lot of times people will say well okay you're just going to let students overwrite until they get an a what's the point of that that's just grade inflation and that would be true except we want to say okay And one of the things that we have done in our own teaching and we encourage teachers to do is, okay, maybe we don't need so many different graded things. Maybe we can focus on some bigger things that actually make sense to have students continue to work at, to continue to to strive at, so that it makes sense to override their grades. And what we're talking about when we do that is the actual development of a skill that's useful in the future and not just like, okay, redo the worksheet, but get it right this time. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about orienting things towards a use value that makes sense that we say, we'll do it again and do it a little bit better this time. And then we'll rewrite your grade because you've actually made a step developmentally, not just in the grade book. It sounds like a way to like give yourself permission to try something without worrying about whether you're going to be good at it at the start. And Another idea you had that I thought was interesting was portfolios, like what a student might present for, say, an AP art class. But, you know, you did have, I guess Vermont tried this out, and the the feedback was that it was too time-consuming and that there were differences in grades depending on whether you were assessing your own students or someone else's. So it's a really unique idea, but it seems like, at least in Vermont, they didn't love it. It's not easy. And one of the things that we went back and forth with each other about in writing this book was, do we want to sell a million copies or do we want to be right? 
Now, I think we could have sold a lot more copies <laughs> if we had said, you know, hey, there are just four things you need to do, right? And one of them is, you know, just dump standardized tests for portfolios. And it's not that easy. Um, if portfolios were easy to implement, there are enough smart, savvy educators in all 50 states that we would see that instead of the dominance of standardized testing that we see now. It's going to take time. It's going to take investment. But I think we can get there. And there are examples like the New York Performance Standards Consortium, where in some assessments, they are using portfolios of student work in lieu of standardized tests. Now, are we going to scale that for all 50 million students in all 98,000 schools tomorrow? No, but we do have to start someplace because we've said this, this is a recurring theme this morning. As long as we continue to just grab off the shelf solutions, we are going to continue to have negative unintended consequences. And so can we, for instance, think about allowing students to show what they know and can do so that they see that their work itself actually matters so that the things they're actually working on in their classrooms are not for the purpose of a machine scored standardized test result, but rather the development of competencies, the development of real meaningful skills. And we offer the example of the advanced placement program, not because we think it's the gold standard, but because it happens on a large enough scale that it shows this can happen. And in fact, educators who participate in the norming sessions for grading AP portfolios often report back that that's among the best professional development that they receive in their careers. And so we also need to be thinking about, wow, what are the positive side effects that could come from smarter and better approaches to assessment? And that gets to something that you talk about, which I really love, is creating tests worth teaching to. And I can remember when I took AP U.S. History many years ago, let's say that way. Um, but when I took AP U.S. History, you take the exam several weeks before. I grew up in New York, so I took the Regents exams, the standardized. And my teacher was very clear that, like, the goal, we were teaching to the AP exam and that basically the Regents was going to be a cakewalk once you did the AP exam. And... It's interesting because that was, in some ways, it's multiple choice. It's short answers, like sentences or two. It's long answers. There's one big essay. And I do like that idea. Maybe that's a test worth teaching to instead of the regents, which was all multiple choice. And I remember it being very easy to pass. Yeah, I mean, this is this goes to what Jack is saying. I mean, we think if it's at the center, as we've talked about uh, uh, over the last 40 minutes, if, if we center the assessment of learning, if it motivates, if it drives everything we do from the students to the teachers to the schools, it seems worth it that we would put in those technologies, we would invest in those technologies in such a way that we would feel proud to hold them up and say, look, this is this is what we're doing. This is what we're having students focus on. And too often, um, you know, the cost considerations of evaluating things like portfolios or you know, the reason that um, AP tests cost what they do is because you have a bunch of teachers gathered together, norming, learning the test, and then assessing it. And so it's not, again, like Jack said, it's not that the AP is, you know, the the, the, the ultimate, the final, the final say on what a, a good exam looks like, but, 
you know, there's a cost associated to that and, and developing tests. Um, if people feel like, okay, this, this, our current assessments are not working, we need better, then we need to make the policy decision to commit the resources to developing tests that when they motivate students to develop skills, or that when we make hard choices and say, you know, you worked hard, but it's just not quite at the level that we're looking for, that we feel good that it wasn't an arbitrary, complicated, multiple choice question, but that it actually reflected, you know, a real solid effort. And we feel good about what the student put forward and our ability to evaluate that as a, a holistic and meaningful learning experience. So that's what we have in mind. And as Jack said, it's an ambitious goal, but given the stakes and given how much it pervades our system, it seems like a it seems like a good trade to make. That was Ethan Hutt, a professor at the University of North Carolina. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. And Jack Snyder, professor of education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And I had so many questions that I didn't get to ask Ethan and Jack, so I definitely recommend checking out their new book, Off the Mark. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with the Fordham Institute here in Ohio about grades, testing, and why they think we should still be retaining kids who can't pass the third grade reading exam. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about this hour about the systems in place to evaluate student academic performance. Everything from grades to GPAs to transcripts and standardized testing. In the last segments, we talked with the authors of a new book, Off the Mark, who say the current systems can get in the way of student learning and potentially heighten inequality. Joining us now is Michael Petrelli, president of the Thomas Fordham Institute. Welcome to All Sides. It's great to be with you, Anna. I want to circle back to that third grade reading guarantee that we talked about with the authors. The Fordham Institute testified in support of keeping the retention requirement. And I want to kind of, well, I just want to give you a chance to talk about why you think that was important. Sure. Well, keep in mind a couple of things, Anna. First of all, we are, of course, talking at a time uh, when we are still in the shadow of the pandemic. You know, new studies come out every day. There was a big one in The New York Times just yesterday about how much ground students lost during the pandemic and still had such a far way to go. And yet we have this habit in our education system to take kids and pass them on to the next grade, whether they're ready or not. You know, this has been baked into our system, just just like grades and tests, uh, like Jack and Ethan were talking about. The idea of grouping kids based on their birth date, you know, that that is a uh, very old idea and that's what we still do. You know, this notion with social promotion with the third grade reading guarantee is to say, hey, if a child uh, is not on grade level, in fact, if they're way, way behind, is it really in their best interest to move them to the next grade where they're going to fall further and further behind? Or can we have a system where they get 
the help and intervention they need before they move on. That's what this is about. It's not really about the test so much. The test gives us information. Uh, in Ohio's policy, you know, they can retake the test many times. There's different tests. You know, if they have one bad day, that's not going to keep them back. Uh, you know, for the most part, we're talking about kids, you know, who are in third grade and are barely able to sound out words yet. You know, they're way behind where your daughter is or where my sons were at the time. Uh, they need help. Yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to. So whether we're talking with Jack and Ethan in the last segment or you, I think these questions fundamentally come down to is how do we make sure that kids can read, can do arithmetic, can have the skills that they need to be functional adults in the world and also have a passion for something that could become a career. Mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately everybody's goal in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, Anna. And I think especially in the early grades, huge agreement about what we want elementary schools to do or in even middle schools, right? Uh, you know, we want everybody to come out of those institutions having the basic skills, but also, you know, the beginning of a grounding in history and science and art and music to have a positive experience learning and feel good about themselves as learners. So we all want that. Uh and, and I'm glad that Ethan and Jack are looking at this issue of grades and testing because it is a huge part of our system. It gets very little attention. I just think some of their ideas uh, strike me, but both as an analyst, but especially as a parent, as rather naive, right? I do want to talk about some of those ideas. In particular, what do you think about this idea of a rewritable grade, a grade that could rise over the course of a year as you actually mm -hmm. learn the subject versus maybe you got a C first quarter, a B next quarter, and mm -hmm. then you brought it to an A by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I, I mean, I think some of these ideas are, are fine. I mean, we have a lot of this in place already, as you say. I mean, a, a college admissions officer can see that your grade went from a C to a B to an A, and they like to see that. That shows growth. So we have that information already. The challenge of making, say, the original C rewritable is, as they said, uh, students are rational, especially once you're talking about teenagers. I have two of them in my house right now. Uh, they are going to figure out how to game the system. And if the message is, uh, you know, you can always bring up your grade later. You can always retake the test. You don't have to turn in the assignment on time because you can, you know, try again later. Uh, guess what happens? You hear this from teachers. The kids stop turning in their assignments on time. They stop studying for the test. Now, Look, we would love it were every teenager in America to be intrinsically motivated to learn <laughs> and to work hard in all their subjects. Look, I'm a proud father. You said you're a proud mother. You know, my my 16-year-old loves history, always has. You know, he will go down rabbit holes on Wikipedia or YouTube or even read a book about history. Uh, he's not as into math. You know, he's not going on Khan Academy doing math problems in his spare time. If he's going to learn math, it's going to be because he's pushed by his teachers to do so and and because he wants a good grade because he wants to get into a good college and his future self is going to thank him for putting in that effort so we got you know it, it is just a fact that grades do motivate kids for better or for worse and without that uh, they wouldn't put as much effort in they wouldn't learn as much where do you come down on teaching to the test? Because mm -hmm. I know this is a very controversial thing teachers complain about it parents complain about it it's I feel like it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? You want the test to know where we are, mm -hmm. where the kids are, but does teaching to the test get in the way of learning? Yeah, it, it certainly can. I mean, look, I think we had a big problem with this back in the No Child Left Behind days, which is now 20, 15, 20 years behind us. In those days, the tests tended to be pretty low-level 
basic skills, fill in the blank. And they were tied to real consequences for schools and a lot of pressure that teachers felt. And so there was this pressure to really teach to the test and therefore teach these low level skills all the time. Uh, thankfully, the tests in Ohio and elsewhere have gotten a lot better over time. They're more like the kinds of tests that you might see on the advanced placement exams, which, you know, are not perfect. But at least if you're teaching to those tests, what that means is you're teaching the content, you're teaching kids how to write, you're te hopefully thinking them, teaching them how to think at high levels. So the, the quality of the test does matter. Uh, and, and, you know, that takes investing in more, you know, those better tests cost more money. Sometimes it takes longer to get the results back. But, uh, but I think we have largely addressed that issue. Uh, and, and look, there's also a lot less pressure than there used to be, you know, including in Ohio. You know, we don't use test scores to evaluate teachers uh, like we were talking about doing during the Obama administration. We don't administration. use district scores to put them on the list for the voucher anymore. Uh, right. That's right. Uh, you know, and yes, we do rate schools with the with with now the uh, one to five star ratings, you know, but uh, but that's but there's value about, added. So but, but right. It also looks at value added. Exactly. So you can look at progress over time. So it sounds like you definitely support the idea of creating tests worth teaching to. But I did want to get your take on transcripts mm -hmm. and this idea that the transcript should possibly include a portfolio or additional mm -hmm. information just besides raw numbers. Mm -hmm. No, that that idea I like. I mean, look, I, I think they're right that we do now have the technology uh, to include a lot more information, more robust information. And so, yeah, let's, let's do that for sure. Uh, and for this relatively small group of kids who are gunning for the most selective colleges. And it really is a, a small group. But, but you know, for those kids, they do pay a lot of attention, as do their families. We, you know, parents try to think about what are those college admissions officers looking for. Uh, and so finding ways to make sure that those signals are about, hey, we really do want to see, uh, you know, your demonstration that, you know, you, you have a love of learning to see where you're interested, to let you go deeper in those subject matter that really does spark an interest for you. But that doesn't mean replacing grades. I think that's in addition to grades. And, and it doesn't mean that the only thing we need kids to learn is what they're interested in, because, uh, you know, it's a little bit of the eat your spinach thing. It's good for them to learn even the subjects that maybe aren't their top pick, at least in, through high school. I want to say, we didn't get a chance to talk with, um, the authors, Jack and Ethan, about pass-fail systems. But this is something that school districts tried during the pandemic as sort of like a, hey, this is more complicated. Let's just pass-fail. Parents, in some situations, rioted at the idea of pass-fail. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, because the problem is uh, then, first of all, it, it feels like setting a low standard. I mean, if the only thing you have to do is not get an F, uh, so now a, a student's gunning for a D instead of an A, you have lowered the bar, right? And and look, Anna, I mean, the pandemic was a special case. That was, you know, miserable experience and difficult and no good options. Uh, and it's also challenging to try to figure out, you know, how to motivate higher achieving kids uh, while also motivating lower achieving kids. I mean, this stuff is hard. And 
uh, I think uh, having some flexibility in the system makes sense. What what isn't good, and I think what teachers are really fighting back about, are some of the mandates that are coming, especially from school boards that are telling teachers things like, you may not ever give a zero on an assignment. Uh, you, the lowest grade you can give is a 50%. Or you must allow kids to retake tests or to, to turn in assignments late. That's driving them crazy because, again, it's leading to behaviors that aren't good for the kids, that's aren't not good for their learning, uh, and is taking tools away from their toolbox. Yeah, I had a teacher in high school who you had, we had dates to turn in assignments, but you could also make them up for partial credit up until the final mm-hmm. day. And that, I thought that was kind of an interesting take on it. And it, it is that flexibility, though, to say, mm-hmm. you're almost an adult, you're 17, mm-hmm. you can do this now and get full credit, you can turn mm-hmm. it in by the end of the year and get partial credit. But I appreciated that flexibility. Mm-hmm. If you want to procrastinate and do an entire semester's worth of work in 24 hours, you could give that a whirl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and look, and that can work okay for some 17 year olds. It might not work well for most seventh graders, right? right. So again, we, we have to be specific here. And uh, I think, you know, but some of these But that is that policies, grade to grade flexibility. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. Give, uh, you know, don't take authority away from teachers, though. That's that's my main message. You know, we're getting to the end of our time here, but how how do you reconcile, like, so, like, when I was in high school and sometimes when I was in college, I did sometimes take these classes, beca- not because I was interested, but because I knew it would be easy to get an A in. Mm-hmm. And now as an adult, I look back on that and I'm like, why did I do that? Like, why did I waste my time on a class that I didn't love because I knew it would be mm-hmm. easy and raise my GPA? Like, how do we correct for that incentive? Yeah, no, that that is an issue for sure. Look, I, I think we have to pay attention to what the colleges, the selective colleges are asking for. Uh, you know, when we're talking about high school, if, if kids are taking that, you know, AP psych class because they think it's an easy A and they're not interested in it, that that is a problem, you know, and then the colleges could send messages that say, you know, uh, here's what we really want to see. Uh, we we want to see you go deep in a particular subject area, or it matters a lot to us to know how what your math skills are like. So you know it's more important that you take a, a math you know AP class, even though they're harder. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're not going to get to perfect solutions here, uh, but the answer is not to throw out the grades. And the answer is not to lean into this notion that everything has to rest on kids' intrinsic motivation. They are teenagers. As we know, they have a million things to distract them these days, uh, especially online. If we want them to learn, they've got to put in the effort and grades are one way to get them to do that. That was Michael Petrelli. Uh, president of the Thomas Fordham Institute. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Anna. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.